Hey everyone, welcome to the show. So today I want to talk a little bit about looking, looking at painting in particular, looking at two-dimensional imagery, not looking at art as a whole, but really just focusing on one of the most, you know, sort of commonplace things out there when we go to look at art is two-dimensionality. And, I, you know, I, I've, I've encountered a lot of interesting situations as an educator where I see the way in which people in American culture look at art and make art for that matter. And, and I'm not, I'm, I often want to explore this topic. Like I often want to talk about this with people and, and try and get to the bottom of where it is that we steered off course. And we have, we've, we've steered really far off course. An example of how we've done that is coming from when I was in my undergraduate college and we'd be in painting courses and we'd put paintings up on the wall and there was this one woman who always and she was in several of my classes but she would always say I see a chicken she would look for this thing in the painting that was not really there it was not the artist's intention to ever ever paint a chicken but she'd always find a chicken and so I'm curious about where this came from, and that's what I want to talk about today, and I'm hoping you guys hang in there with me. And this is Art Shorts. All right, let's get back to it. So where did this come from? Why is it that when some people, not everyone, but some people come to a, an abstract work, which is, you know, it's difficult to look at a piece of abstract art sometimes for people. They don't understand what it is that they're, they're seeing. And so their first inclination is to find the recognizable thing in the painting. And it's almost as if the, the, the act of looking at painting has turned into a kind of game for American culture in particular, where we, we, we think it's our job as the viewer to pluck out a bunch of things that we recognize. And when we've done that, we feel like we've won the game, especially if we've done it in the most sort of outlandish way. Oh, I see a chicken. Or, oh, I see, you know, insert narrative here. Now, this is an entirely a wrong thing to do. This is not necessarily something we should never do. But when it becomes the only thing we do, we, we, have, we have to sort of reset our course here, right? I call it the Where's Waldo syndrome. You know, Where's Waldo is a cartoon. It's a comic page that usually has thousands of little drawn, illustrated people in it. And somewhere is Waldo. He's wearing a red and white striped sweater and a pair of glasses and a hat. And he's hard to find. And so we take delight in scouring the image for this little guy. And when we find him, we're like, oh, there's Waldo. This is like how we approach abstract painting a lot of the time. Where's the chicken? Where is this thing that I recognize because once I get that I've done it now imagine for a minute a painter who spends their life in the studio working tirelessly with paint and color and line and you know a variety of materials and thoughts and concepts considering their work 
stepping back from it and looking at it. Imagine all that struggle, strife, failure, rejection, all just to hide a farm animal for you to find. It, it's, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. And so sometimes I think when somebody does the where's the chicken thing, I, I get, I, I get, I get, I'll admit, I get a little angry at this, right? Because it's like, do you really think that this was the objective of the, the, the painter was to hide that thing for you to look for? Okay, so let's try and let's, let's give the benefit of the doubt to the viewer for a minute and say, okay, well, what's, why are we doing this? What's wrong here? Where did we steer off course? Well, my guess is, is that we steered off course more than 100 years ago, more than 150 years ago, with the advent of photography. I think photography got us there. So how, how is this possible? Well, let's talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about a, um, let's talk about a trajectory, a known trajectory. This is not my trajectory that I'm thinking about in this podcast. Let's talk about a known trajectory that definitely steered painting in a new direction, and that's photography. In the early to mid-1800s, photography was rapidly coming into the fold, you know, from something that was um, just a rudimentary image burned into a surface using bitumen and different reactive salts to, you know, you know um, uh, Eastman Kodak developing paper in the late 1800s. So in a short span of about 50 years, photography went from something rather experimental and scientific to something that started to hit the mainstream. And so what you have in painting in this very same time is a radical shift in painting away from this kind of realistic um, interpretation of things towards Impressionism. You had painters sort of recognizing the fact that the camera could now do the job the painter did by representing a, a scene, a person, in a relatively short time with incredible accuracy and the, the painter's job sort of now either had to shift or be destroyed and so you know we see people like Cezanne with uh, you know a real experimental use of color a real scientific use of color still an interest now in technology because at the time pigment and color was part of technology it was part of chemistry it was part of science um, and we kind of see painters moving in this direction to try and allow paint to do a thing that the photography could not do. And what were those things? Well, photography could not see atmosphere. Photography could not, at the time, still experiment with and toy with the ways in which our brains interpret color. And so we see this push towards paint itself as paint slowly and modernism is born the image becomes not secondary at first right but now all of a sudden something else begins to take the driver's seat in the world of painting and that driver's seat is the paint and what the paint can do that the photograph can't all right so what's the now what's the job of the photograph well the photograph one of the key reasons that the photograph was so successful is from the standpoint of an economy, an economy of time. Do something faster and for less money, 
and it wins in a capitalist society. It always wins, right? Faster and cheaper is always better. And so what that photograph, you know, in a matter of minutes could capture an image that it would take a painter hours to do. Hours. And so paintings were not nearly as abundant, even though they were abundant, they were not nearly as abundant as photography or photographs were about to become. And so photographs begin to sort of take the world by storm. And so what do we see with photographs? Well, we see a lot of people in photographs early on. You see images of, you know, people gathered together, cabinet cards, families, these types of images that sort of capture us. We were able to get perfect likenesses of us. Portrait painting was one of those things where I would imagine when you, as the subject of the painting, finally saw what the painter had done, you probably did not recognize it as you. You might not have, you know, obviously you had seen yourself in a mirror, you knew what you looked like. But when you came to the painting, there was, you know, the hand was involved, there was imprecision involved. And so you either liked it or you didn't like it. And that was probably based around what your own perception of yourself was. So the camera took that level of, of subjectivity completely out. The camera was capturing your exact likeness and it did it quickly. So sure, this is a win. So the camera goes on to sort of, you know, in its speed and in its detail, um, you know, it kind of wins the race, right? It wins the economic race of what's better for the end user, the photograph or the painting when it comes to that image. And it does so relatively fast, so it's a win. And, wh and what were those photographs doing? Well, they were, they were showing us a thing. They were showing us a, a likeness of ourselves. So we now have this fantastic, fast, detailed, precise mechanism to show us things in the world, things we might not, not otherwise be able to see. So now, someone who can't travel easily, you know, in the 1800s, early 1900s, can see images of faraway places that are not interpretations, they're exact. And so now we learn to look at two-dimensionality photographs to look for things that give us clues to the world. They're projections of the world, obviously. I mean, I'm not saying anything that's earth-shattering here, right? But we were trained through photography and two-dimensionality and an economy of time to interpret images quickly. Well, now what's a painting do? Well, in a lot of respects for the everyday person, painting's dead. Painting's not even something that can tell me anything. Now, of course, there is an art appreciating and art viewing side of culture that's still, you know, well, partially rejected Impressionism because they just didn't understand what this was about. These paintings were garish. These paintings were imprecise. These paintings had to compete with photography. And so they were often, and, and um, they were often criticized, right? It was very hard for people to wrap their heads around what it was that was going on in this work. And the slice of culture that still believed in painting was radically cut down into something very, very small. So modernism is born. Images on canvas, images on panel now begin to become about something else, mostly about that place the camera can't go. So Impressionism is the start of that. 
and as we move out of Impressionism and we move through several other movements into the early 1900s, we wind up, you know, with Cubism. Cubism is certainly something that the photography, the photography end of things cannot show us. And then we move into Surrealism. Surrealism, the world inside the dream, is certainly a place the camera can't go. Expressionism is certainly a place that the camera couldn't go at the time. And so paintings march towards this thing about material moves on, right, and on and on. The painting was becoming an object rather than a picture. Now, what's ironic is sometimes you hear you hear someone like Jackson Pollock talk about, you know, in writings and in early interviews, he talks about paintings as, he refers to them as pictures. There are painters out there that refer to their work as pictures. And the reason Pollock would be ironic here, Jackson Pollock was an abstract expressionist painter who dripped paint onto the canvas in these wild arrays of layered drips of color. And they created these incredible abstract spaces that were really non-imagery based, okay? And he referred to something that had nothing to do with recognizable imagery as a picture. He referred to that as a picture, which to me has, has a, a closer connection to photography than it does to painting. To me, I would refer to a painting as, well, if not a painting, maybe, to some degree, maybe, an object. A painting to me is a thing more than a photograph is a thing. So let me try and break this down for a second because I'm, I'm kind of veering off into this really weird nebulous space. If we look at the physicality of a photograph, well, what do we have? We've got a piece of paper that an image sits on top of and that image projects back to our, our eye and says, okay, I'm here to show you something. But ultimately, it's a piece of paper. It is thin. It is the closest thing to true two-dimensionality we can get. Okay, you can't put your finger inside any element of the photograph. It hits the surface and it stops. A painting, however, has dimensionality. Okay, so first of all, you have some surface that the paint is applied to. It is either a canvas, which could be an inch and a half thick, an inch thick. It could be two inches thick. But the point is, is that the surface of the painting sits on top of something. There's a physical objectness to the work itself. That's the first thing. The second thing is the paint on the surface of the canvas or on the panel has another layer of physicality. If you take somebody like Terry Winters, for example, a Terry Winters painting, you could physically put your finger on that surface and like almost pluck a chunk of the paint off because there's a there's a nodule of painting of paint there so there's another level of physicality that gives this it's almost like bas relief it has dimensionality to it so a key difference between the photograph and the painting is that the photograph lives in in a true two-dimensional sense a painting just sort of edges a little bit more towards objecthood okay so fair enough Let's leave that there for now. So the photograph's job in its two-dimensionality is to show us a thing, right? Now this is of course before photography really enters the art fold and begins to kind of have another purpose. When photography first was being used, and for quite a while, it was used specifically to show us things and do it well and do it fast. 
The painting now no longer tries to show us something like it used to do, say in the Renaissance, when painting's job was to illustrate stories from religion, right? When painting's job was to show us the details, say in a landscape, you know, like a Bierstadt painting or, you know, painting all of a sudden, and that was much later, but painting all of a sudden now has to find a new job. It was fired from its old job. It was replaced from its, its old position by technology and now has to go out into the world and repurpose itself. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> okay, so painting gets to this new place, but we as people did not we still see the painting as this two-dimensional thing that hangs on the wall almost undifferentiated from a, a piece of photography and its job they can be side by side and we'll try to read them in the same way we have forgotten that the painting is a thing unto itself it is its own object and its job its place in the world has a function that is quite different than that of photography. See, in a lot of respects, the photograph records something that was here before, and it does become its own thing. There's no two ways about that. But its primary job is to relate to us the recording of the thing that was here before. Whereas the painting through the hand of the painter becomes a thing unto itself. It is a thing that was not here before. So when we take on the job of playing the game of finding the hidden thing in the painting, I see a chicken, we're making a grave mistake because now we're basically taking that thing that is unique in the world, a thing unto itself, and we are saying basically, ah, you're related to that over there, that photograph. You, you guys are, you guys are directly your first cousins, your brother and sister. When in fact, these are two entities from completely different, almost planets. All right, so let's be constructive here. Let's be constructive. What do we do? What do we do when we come to a painting? I can't spend 20 minutes tearing apart why we look at painting wrong and not give you something to think about, something to walk away with for how we should look at a painting. The first thing we're going to do here is we're going to first approach a painting and recognize the fact that it is not necessarily trying to relay to us something that was recorded, okay? The painting is a unique thing in the world that was not here before, all right? So all relational elements that you might find in that painting, and we're really talking about, well, we're talking about all painting here because on some level, all painting has a level of abstraction in it. All painting has a level of interpretation in it, but some have more than others. So your first job when you come to it is to first recognize its objectness, okay? It is paint on surface, and we, we can approach that thing by talking about what we see, but don't look for hidden pictures. Look at it as a whole. It's almost as if you walk into a diner and you see an old couple sitting together having their lunch, 
They're not speaking, but they're dressed in a certain way. Their posture and familiarity with one another, the way in which they hold their utensils. You can tell they have a life together. They have a history together. Their stories that they could tell, but currently are not because they're enjoying that meal, are just evident and hiding under the surface. And you almost don't even need to hear the details of those stories because just based on all those things you're seeing at first glance, you kind of get that feeling. You get that story. You understand them. And that's how those abstracted elements in a painting should be speaking to you. Just like that old couple in the diner sitting there are speaking to you without saying a word, without necessarily having to get into the detail of the fact that the woman has a tiny little patch of a bear sewn to her dress, which is insignificant in terms of the overall picture of what you're seeing here, right? It doesn't matter that that little bear is sewn to her dress. What matters is the way in which they hold each, the way in which they hold themselves, their posture, their expression, the way they look at one another, the way she sips the soup, the sound that it makes. You feel this other thing. Is it resistance? Is it connection? Have they grown tired of one another? That's what this is about. It's about extrapolating a scenario that is not necessarily about these details and finding the little things. It's about locating the larger narrative, the larger feeling or expression or visual excitement that exists in there that is not necessarily about how the little detail of this thing that you recognize adds up to something like a win. All right, it's time to wrap up for today. I really appreciate you hanging out and listening to Art Shorts today. Um, I really enjoy bringing you this podcast. I, I feel like as an educator, this is a really effective avenue for me to talk about little subtleties in the world that I feel are important. So if you feel like this is important, if you feel like you want to support this, you can head over to the Patreon page and throw a little support our way. Terry and I also bring you The Large Glass on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Twitch TV, where we bring you a new artist or art-related theme. Uh, Some fantastic content that we're trying to produce. We're bringing you live artists in the studio to talk to. Um, It's something we really enjoy and love to do. So if you could give us a little support and throw us some, you know, some love that way, we would be very, very thankful. In the meantime, head out to a museum, head out to a gallery, take in a painting and think about how it speaks as its own thing, as that object that's, you know, unique in this world. And we will see you next time. Take care.